Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Promotional support for this episode of the Hinckley Report podcast is provided by Trib Talk, an award-winning news podcast from the Salt Lake Tribune. Join host Benjamin Wood, Tribune reporters, and community guests as they dive into the latest topics affecting Utahns. Find Trib Talk at sltrib.com or by searching for Trib Talk on most major podcast platforms. Tonight on the Hinkley Report. Legislators tackled several tough issues in a special session this week. Public officials, political parties, and even the Utah Supreme Court weigh in on changes to Utah's elections that could have major implications on upcoming races. And leaders consider amending the state's constitution, which could have a significant impact on education funding. Good evening, and welcome to The Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering this week, we have Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, Nicole Nixon, reporter for KUER, and Robert Gerke, news columnist for the Salt Lake Tribune. So glad to have you all with us. And I want to jump right in. Boyd, we're going to start with you because we talked on this program last week about our legislators convening themselves for a special session. We gave our thoughts about what might happen, but now we get to talk about what they did. What did happen? And we, we still just need to talk about medical marijuana because that was a huge topic for this special session. 122 pages worth of material came out from our legislature in terms of amendments. Give us an idea of what they said, and then Nicole, you're going to have to tell us what the flavor was uh, in those discussions. Yeah, I think the, the the biggest thing that came out of it, obviously, is the changes in terms of how this is going to be dispensed and done. You had both the Salt Lake and Davis County uh, offices concerned about what it would mean and the fact that there's still federal laws on the books that are going to be a problem. Uh, so that was really the thing that they addressed. Uh, I think the important thing for us to keep in mind is, one, it, it really shows how hard it is to get to good policy uh, through ballot initiatives. Uh, and while the ballot initiative is so important that citizens have to have that ability if the legislature's not doing what they want to weigh in it still shows there are a lot of unintended consequences and a lot of uh, nitty-gritty details that have to get hammered out in the legislative process even though they did a fix after the ballot initiative uh, there's still more to be done and I think we'll be talking about this for a, a long time to come. If I could and what Nicole I don't mean to step on here but uh, they, what they did at the special session though moves them closer to what they had in the ballot initiative. The yes. reason they had to do the special session was because they tried to reinvent the wheel and it was not what they came up with wasn't going to work and so this special session actually moves them closer to the ballot initiative in terms of the number of dispensaries that are allowed and some of the protections that are in place for people parents who who use this or have children who need it uh, Nicole, you were there listening to this debate uh, on the Hill, and, and what Robert just said is exactly right. W did you hear any legislators saying, let's do this because it's more in line with uh, I, what the voters wanted, or are they doing this for uh, other reasons? I asked uh, leadership about that, and they basically said no. Um, they were very defensive about the, the central fill idea system not working out. Um, they said that just because there are a, little, a few more private dispensaries now, 
does not mean that it is uh, going back to Prop 2 because the, the cannabis pharmacies are still very different from the private dispensaries that would have been allowed under Prop 2, but I think that they're still trying to, you know, figure this out like, mm -hmm. like the rest of us and will continue to. Uh, tell us more about the dispensary idea here because no more central fill from the mm -hmm. state, but now we have 14 authorized private dispensaries. How yeah. is that going to work? Um, they have it. They have the state carved up in f in four geographic areas, basically, and there's so there has to be sort of a, a set number of these dispensaries in each part of the state to um, guarantee access for people in rural areas. Other big parts of this bill um, allow for a home delivery of marijuana, which is a pretty big win for patient advocates. And um, just I think people though are still worried about that 14 won't be enough. So um, they also allowed for the possibility for more if 14 is not enough. Um, what that means and what a, a market need looks like has to be determined by the Department of Health and the, the uh, Agriculture Department going forward though. The other concern is that they're not gonna meet the deadline by March 1st. Um, I mean, we haven't even had seeds planted yet and that's six months away or less than six months away. So we'll have to see if they actually have products available for patients by March. My understanding is some of these uh, growers are planning to grow outside which is not very Utah winters are not very conducive to that sort of activity so yeah and the March 1st deadline is looking pretty tenuous at this point. Robert as, as you talk with people who were uh, proponents of yeah. this initiative are, are they feeling more comfortable where this is going now that there's this little tweak what are we going to see going forward from this particular from these group or the people who are not satisfied? I mean it depends on who you talk to I think that I think the 14 dispensaries they feel better about that because as Nicole mentioned the, the access was a concern access especially in rural parts of the state was a concern. I think I, I liked the original idea of having it done through the county health departments, but as Boyd noted, the county attorneys didn't want to expose county employees to potential federal prosecution for trafficking and drugs, essentially. So um, so I think that they're moving in the right direction. I, I think it's a, a little bit unfortunate that we ended up, it ended up taking us this long to get to where we are now, because you know the, the, this was supposed to be ramping up during this whole period of time. And, and there's sort of the sense that Utah has to reinvent the wheel all the time. And other states are already doing this and doing it effectively and having it well regulated. And instead, we kind of had to try to go do our own thing and ended up wasting a lot of time and effort and energy. So the, the, we got to wait and see, I guess, how these growers turn out if they if they able, are able to produce plants in time to get them to market. But uh, that's that's the next big question, I think. Okay. Very good. Another another issue, Boyd, they took up was this this ending this litigation with our former Attorney General John Swallow. They actually had to convene to allocate funds to take care of the claim he has against the state because he was acquitted. Talk about what happened there and why the state was really on the hook for this $1.5 million. Yeah, it, it's really, and, and Robert did a lot of great reporting on this uh, over the last several years as well. And, and so obviously I think they were just trying to get to an, an end point. And I don't even know, it, with the settlement, I don't know if that still gets us to an end point uh, or not. This may be one that uh, is, is around for quite a while. Uh, but obviously with the acquittal of, uh, of John Swallow, they there obviously were things they had to feel like they were trying to get that buttoned up and but the big thing is if they can pivot and move uh, and the real challenging thing is the more we continue to have these kind of conversations and go down these paths uh, one of the big challenges we have is trust trust in, in institutions and government uh, and I think uh, both sides of the aisle really felt like well this is a way we can at least 
put a stamp on this portion and hopefully turn the page and get to a new chapter. Yeah, Robert, I want to show a graphic because what Boyd said was right because mm -hmm. this was something that happened from both sides of the aisle. You might think that we'd just get hung up on this, but it's a quote from Representative Brian King who was there that had some serious things to say about this, a lawyer himself. Uh, Representative King said, it is the prudent thing to do, it is the responsible thing to do. It is a bitter pill to swallow. To swallow. Yeah, that's pretty clever <laughs> yeah. uh, on Representative King's part. Yeah, uh, you know, it is. I mean, it, the, the law, they, their hands were kind of tied based on the, the legal requirement. He was acquitted, uh, you know, prosecuted, I think, charged with originally 12 felonies and it got knocked back to nine and then he was acquitted. Um, and, and so under the law, you're, you're kind of limited in what you can do. One of the things I think they're fixing or, or, or wanting to fix is this thing that lets him not only sue the state for legal fees, but lets his attorney sue the state for legal fees to sue the state for legal fees. Um, they, that's a, one of the things that they want to fix. But, you know, of course, John Swallow was acquitted. He did his, in, I, was in a, I was an innocent man tour uh, after, after this. And, and I think it's important for the public to keep in mind some of the work that the House investigation did, uncovered. Uh, they, they said he put a for sale sign on the door of the Attorney General's office. There were Krispy Kreme meetings, burner phones, trips to Pelican Hill and Newport Beach. There were Lake Powell cruises. There were lost computers, destroyed computers, lost cell phones. I think it's important for the public to keep in mind that while he was acquitted, uh, there was a, a pervasive culture of corruption in the Attorney General's office, and while we ha are legally obligated to pay him this money, uh, it, 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 it by no means is a vindication for him. Also just worth pointing out quickly that he asked for more than he got. He asked for more than $2 million for those legal fees and they were able to negotiate that down a little bit. Um, but that's the investigation into him a few years ago too cost several million dollars. So I think that the legislature and the taxpayers are happy to put all of this behind them. Mm -hmm. I think maybe we've seen the last of this, this one maybe. Yeah, uh, Mark Shirley <laughs> still has a case pending against yeah. uh, Sim Gill's office for uh, un, uh, the prosec his prosecution. Mm -hmm. or and I think one of the unfortunate things that, that we see in these kinds of cases, and whether it's here locally or whether it's nationally, it is this undermining of trust. Pew Research that just came out with another study on trust. And the interesting thing is as we continue to lose our trust in institutions, it's also starting to fray the fabric where we actually trust each other less. Mm -hmm. Used to be if you, you were asked, you know, do you trust your neighbor? That was like an 80%. Of course I trust my neighbor. Uh, but as we lose this confidence in government and institutions, uh, it's also starting to fray the fabric a little bit. We're trusting each other less, and uh, that's a that's a big concern. Mm -hmm. I don't trust your stats, Boyd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I trust Robert. So <laughs> they say we they say we trust our neighbors, but we still brand our cows. That's right. right. Uh, Reagan may have had it right. Trust but verify. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. So Nicole, there was also a very interesting thing here about alcohol because Utah has 4.0 beer coming, but there was a little problem with the law itself and its implementation. We can come in just really quickly. What was that that required a special session to fix it? So they. Are are allowing stores to sell 4% uh, beer, a little heavier than what's allowed now, but they forgot to allow uh, convenience stores to store it in the back room before then. So they had to come in with just, just this technical change to allow stores to uh, transport it and store it in the back room for a few weeks to build up their stock, I guess, before that happens on November 1st. Well, I talked to one of the distributors about this, and, and there are more than 2,500 retail outlets for this, and they would have been rolling out at midnight on November 
September uh -huh. 1st to try to deliver it to all of these retail outlets, and it would have taken up to two weeks to reach some parts of the state. Um, this just gives them that week head start. They can start delivering it at the end of October, and, and it'll be there, and they can start selling it at 12.01 a.m., I guess, on November 1st. I guess people are ready at 12.01. That's right. Yeah, the state will be on time yeah. on this one. Yes. The other thing that I thought was kind of interesting about this whole thing, one of the unanticipated consequences is there are the brewers and distillers, the brewers and distributors are, are not going to order any more 3-2 beer. And so there's a, a high likelihood by, that by mid-October we're going to see rest, uh, restaurants, uh, grocery stores and bars running out of their favorite 3-2 three, two, three, two brands. So we could see a beer drought in, this, in Utah uh, by the end of October. But mm. then coming back with something a little stronger to make coming up for, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, got it, got it. So Nicole, uh, what, one last thing. So the date for the 2020 primary has changed. It's interesting how they had to address this, but it has now moved to June 30th. Mm -hmm. I know everyone watching the program is now getting their calendars. That is the date for the primary. Why, why did they... So it turns out that in mid-April, when political parties are normally holding their nominating conventions, you have a general conference, LDS general conference, one weekend, the first weekend in April. The next weekend is Easter. So that um, delays, I guess, the, the time that they can hold their nominating conventions. And um, they normally do the, the primary the last week in June, the fourth week in Tuesday in June. Um, turns out that in, in 2020, there are five Tuesdays in June. So they decided to just kick that one back an extra week to give that extra t uh, time for people to campaign ahead of their nominating mm -hmm. conventions between the nominating convention and the primary. Very good. Okay, I think that we got through most of the special <laughs> session uh, until the next time. Uh, Boyd, uh, I want to transition to this very interesting question that's come up in the state based on a, a law that was passed by our legislature that allows Utahns to keep their voter information private. Actually, you get to opt in, say, I want to keep my information from being distributed. And as I get ready to ask you a question, I'm going to read, this is what is in that file. Names, birth dates, addresses, phone numbers, party affiliation, and when or if they voted uh, in this last election. Those are the kinds of things that one can get. And one out of every eight Utahns has already voted, opt, opted out. Yeah. Explain that a little bit and some of the ramifications. Well, I think the big ramification is for the political parties. I mean, they, candidates just live on that data because that's how they're going to make their contact. That's who they're going to target. They're going to look at, you know, did they vote in the last three elections, uh, especially when you have a late June uh, primary date, uh, getting your voters out is going to be the real key. Uh, so I think the more that voters say, wait a minute, that's that's my information. Uh, state shouldn't be sharing it. Party shouldn't be sharing it. I'm I should be in control of that. Uh, I think we're going to—it's going to really force campaigns to look at how do they acquire that data uh, in some different ways. I think it's going to be a big challenge. Robert, what's going to happen if we can't get our flyers in the mail? Because they—well, yeah, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, yeah, no, I agree. when you work yeah. on campaigns, more, it, I, it just seems like you know it, it's an easy way for them to get this voter information, yeah. and it's an easy way to track them. But at the same time, it, politics isn't necessarily supposed to be easy, uh, and so maybe just making them go out and knock on more doors instead of targeting doors is a good way yeah. to do it. It's a good way to bring more people into the, into the, into the voting system and, and the political system we have. I, I, I don't really see a problem, I, but I know yeah. the parties are, are, are not happy about it. Uh, so, Nicole, one of the arguments the parties, well, the Republican side is talking about this in particular because it may be, feel like it, they feel like it may hit them even more, um, is that this is how you get information. This is how you get an informed electorate, all right, is to make sure we can get in the right information. The candidates know who they represent. Hmm. You buying any of this? <laughs> I think 
that political parties are, you know, their number one priority is to get their candidates elected. And to do that, they are using information in the voter database to reach those people. So that will always be their top priority. Um, the political parties, and by extension, the lawmakers are worried about this and the ramifications of this new rule. I think that we will see them try to change it. I think that it might be um, politically hard to do that because at the end of the day, uh, voters, even politically active voters, care more about their privacy than their lawmakers' ability to fundraise. I think it's also important to note here, too, that you have an increasing number of Utahns who are becoming independent or who are yeah. divorcing from the party. So where does that data go? And obviously, both parties would love to have access to the independent voter file. Uh, so if those people are also opting out, keeping their privacy, mm -hmm. uh, which again, I think is, is absolutely fine and good, uh, but it does make it harder, again, for the, the parties how do I actually get our people to, to get to that movable middle yeah. group of folks uh, who might be persuadable to go one way or the other? All of the data that you mentioned, all of this stuff that is in the voter file, and it is quite a bit of in information, yeah. obviously, it's sort of a drop in the bucket to, uh, in compared to the big data that these companies, like there are 900 of them in Utah now, I think, doing data analytics and that yeah. sort of thing. So big yeah. data is a big thing. Um, and so if people are concerned about their privacy, maybe they need to be a little concerned about that as well. I will say that we have an election going on right now uh, in the Salt Lake City mayor's race and I never got any flyers in the mail but I have been getting a ton of targeted social media ads yeah. for these candidates. Mm -hmm. It's be very interesting to watch this one I think not many people are know that they, they can do this but increasingly large numbers enough that people are watching it boy do you think we will see a change from our legislature, yeah, will they address it? Nicole said maybe they'd be <laughs> worried about that. I, I think they are going to be worried about it. Uh, so I, I'm not sure how they, they play it out in the end. I think the interesting thing for for voters is they need to figure out where you know where are they putting their data. Uh, voting is one thing. A lot of them, uh, as Robert mentioned, the the big data is is everywhere. But it's still going to come back down and going back to the the Salt Lake mayor's race. Uh, you know, you had so many candidates in that, and the polling all suggested one thing, uh, yeah. but it really came down to a late you know weird date uh, late June uh, next year mm -hmm. it's all going to be you could have you know five six seven candidates for governor uh, and suddenly it's about can you get those people out to actually yeah. vote just before the 4th of July mm -hmm. uh, yeah. so the data thing is going to be interesting but it's going to be boots on the ground knocking doors is going to be the key to campaigning in Utah mm -hmm. very interesting one more thing while we're talking about parties Robert uh, the Central Committee for the Republican Party in the state has just met and they decided to retain that that questionable bylaw we've talked about, which makes it so they would kick out anyone yeah. who does not uh, go through the system instead decides to get signatures. Yeah, this has been going on for years and years and years now. It, it, the Central Committee seems to want to pick a fight like, over this and and see if they're sort of force the lieutenant governor's hand to, you know, see if he'll actually kick people off or, you know, and so they're setting up a showdown. I don't know which way it's going to go. Um, it seems like a little brinksmanship maybe uh, and trying to trying to force the issue and bring it to a head. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll watch this one closely. Yeah. Boyd, uh, let's go back to a another legislative action. We seem to be starting with you on some of these. Two, I think it's 2016, our legislature passed a bill that, that made our school board elections partisan. All right, we talked a lot about, about that at the time, but uh, this last week, our Utah Supreme Court uh, finally was able to hear this case, and they ruled that partisan elections are constitutional. 
All right, so those can happen. This law can go into effect. It was on hold while these lawsuits were being settled. Talk about what that means practically. So, I mean, obviously, uh, it still carries a lot of weight to have an R or a D by your name uh, in the state. But I think more and more people are looking beyond that, uh, especially at the school board level. People are trying to get engaged. It, it may help elevate uh, some debates um, and some of those kind of conversations. Uh, but again, for most Utahns, they, when they get to the school board level, they want to know, do I know this person? Do I trust this person? Uh, my, my child's going to be going to this school or I've got grandchildren in this school. Uh, and so I, I don't know that it's going to have as big a ramifications as some people think it might. Um, but again, I, it, hopefully it, my hope is it elevates the focus on those school board races because they are things that really impact Utah families. So Nicole, that's one of the arguments they've talked about here is this is a way for people to actually maybe figure out who their school board member is if they have to, uh, if they have to run the way that, they're, that they do normal for a normal race. You could even get signatures if you wanted to. It's like a normal election. Mm -hmm. does, does that help increase the visibility in your mind of these candidates? I think that having an R or a D next to your name on a ballot actually makes it less likely that people will actually research you. So um, I don't know that we will actually see the school board change much. I think that we still have a, a pretty broad um, spectrum of educational ideology on the state school board and you have you know people that are against Common Core and all those things and the, the people in the Salt Lake area are more liberal. Um, but I don't know, I guess we'll have to see. Okay, Robert, last word. You know, I think I, I, I kind of disagree with what I, I, I think Nicole's right. I think the people, when you get into that ballot box, you're, if you don't know the person who's running, you're going to vote, you're going to default to R or D. You're going to vote uh, your party affiliation. And I don't think that's the way it should be done. I think it, there is a point to be made that most people don't probably know their school board member or a state school board member. But just giving them a partisan crutch to sort of put the thing, finger on the scales, I think, and when, when people get into the ballot box, I think is the wrong way to go. Um, and so we'll see what happens. As Boyd notes, you know, you've got issues of, of sex ed, you've got issues of Common Core, you've got issues of uh, climate change curriculum, evolution curriculum, all of these things that uh, opting out of vaccinations, all of these are policies that the state school board sets. And so they have a, a profound impact on, on the way our kids learn and what they don't learn. Yeah, they do, and I think it's important too that, that you note that, that it's up to the parties to elevate those candidates mm -hmm. and, and to get people engaged in that level. And so part of it is the citizens taking more responsibility to know before, if, if you're doing it uh, last minute, yeah, you'll probably go with an R or a D, mm -hmm. uh, but we need more inform citizens because these are the issues that impact families the most. Okay. Uh, uh, back to our legislature. Seems to be a lot that they're helping us out with uh, right now. Tax reform, Robert, is back on the agenda. I'm not sure it ever went away, but at the end of the last legislative session, yeah. there was this big discussion about whether or not we want to start taxing services uh, as a form of reducing the tax, the, the tax base uh, yeah. and other categories, which has led to this, you know, this very interesting position they're in right now. Are are we going to have tax reform in the interim? Are they going to wait till the session, or yeah. what, what, just give us a prediction? I, I don't think I don't think there's much likelihood that they're going to do anything in the interim, and I think it's probably also pretty unlikely that they'll do anything in an election year, anything sig mm -hmm. significant. I think there'll be some sort of fine tuning and tinkering with this, but I don't think that ne they necessarily want that the, the Republican leaders don't necessarily want to make their members vote on a tax 
reform plan that will be viewed as a tax increase, no matter how you cut it. Uh, the sales tax plan that they had last year, for example, to tax services was pitched as a tax increase. Um, and the whole thing is being done because they say, well, we need more uh, a, a stronger tax base. Well, that's a tax increase. So I think the likelihood of doing something like that in an election year is pretty slim. Um, there'll, there'll be some fine tuning. I, I, but, I, but I, there's also the possibility that this uh, constitutional amendment to take away the earmark for public education will be a hot topic because they could put that on the on the ballot in 2020 uh, to be ratified by voters, and that would mean that instead of all of the income tax money going to education, it it could go to. Uh, wherever they want it to go, or they could add social services. Senator Dan McKay has a proposal to add uh, social services to the income tax base. So that's, that's I think, the more likely course of action for them. Boy, we have to, we have to address that because that is such a, a big change. Yeah. Right now, that earmark for public ed and income tax is 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 solid, right? That's a piece. Whether or not it's, it's increasing the way people think it should, but if that earmark goes away, what what are the ramifications potentially for public ed, which includes higher ed? Yeah, it's it's the uncertainty factor, uh, which uh -huh. is the real problem. If if the districts and the higher education folks can't, they're not certain they're going to have those funds or that percentage of funds uh, that completely changes their planning and preparation uh, processes. Uh, the other thing, and I, I agree with Robert on this, I think there was a huge missed opportunity in the last legislative session that they didn't really advance it and because it always gets tough when you get down to saying hey yeah your taxes are going to you are going to pay more uh, you can get creative and talk about services and all of those things but in the end we got to look at who who's that going to benefit who's that really going to hurt um, and i think they they didn't do the hard work and heavy lifting uh, which is why they kicked the can oh. down the road and now we're into an election year and well, nothing's happening they also took on the most powerful lobbies in the state when they start took on the doctors they took on, they said we're going to tax lawyers we're going to tax you know real real estate investment that sort of thing. Hey, so Nicole, to talk, talk about what, what they've just, what, what they're saying here in the lens of the legislature, because it's interesting also, they missed an opportunity, or but what are they really getting to? I want to show this quote uh, from Representative Tim Quinn. It gets to the heart of it, which is just so interesting. He said, let's just be honest with the people and say, this is what we want to do, and this is why we want to do it, because schools truly have no guarantees. That education fund is no guarantee to the education community. I think it's really interesting to hear that quote from Representative Quinn, who sort of led, uh, pushed this bill during the session. I think lawmakers learned some hard lessons earlier this year when they um, tried so hard to push that through and it just fell apart in the last few weeks with all of this pushback. Um, so I think that that kind of speaks to, you know, they were pitching it as a tax cut, but nobody was buying in. Everybody was seeing it, viewing it as a tax increase. So to hear that coming from Representative Quinn, I think speaks a lot to what he went through during the session. I've also noticed that they're slowing this process way, way, way down. Um, I don't know if that is to actually slow it down or to make it look like they're slowing it down so that they can wait another maybe year after the election. When, when Governor Huntsman passed the last big tax reform we had in the state in 2008 and 2009, it was a multi-year process. Then they spent several years leading up to that studying the issue of lowering the rates on the taxes. And so for them to to have thought that they could sneak a sales tax, uh, a sales tax on services through in, in one session, I think was a little bit naive. Um, and now I think they're running into the hard test of they've got on one hand all of these services, like I said, the doctors, lawyers, realtors, and so forth that they, that would be taxed, or they've got the education community, and the education community is no pushover either. So they've got they're going to have they're on the horns of a dilemma. Let's say right. <laughs> that's got to be the last word on that one. Very great conversation today. Thank you for making this so much more clear for all of us. We appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.